Okay, well, uh, good morning, everybody. Start off nice and dressed. <laughs> good morning, Mr. Breeling. Oh, my goodness. All right. Uh, imagine with me for a moment. We'll, we'll open our Bibles in just a moment. But before we do, I just wonder if you can remember back. And I know we're all... Well, if you can remember back to when you were saved. Now, I know we're all saved at different times. Uh, some of us are brought up in, in, in godly Christian homes, and so we don't have this dramatic conversion experience, and that's fine. If, you, if, you, if this doesn't really describe you, then I'm sure you can think of somebody who it does describe. Think of uh, a time in your life, perhaps, or somebody else's, where you were just saved. The, the, there's this freshness about uh, who God is. There's this hunger for the Word of God. Uh, hopefully this takes you back. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully you're there now, right? But uh, you're on fire for the Lord. You're, you're, and you're, you're, as you're newly saved, you're beginning to devote yourself to the reading of your word, <clears throat> the reading of the word of God. You have this great joy. You go to church each Sunday and it's, it's just a new thing every week. Everything's amazing and you're learning these, these new truths and there's all these wonderful people there who who love the Word of God like you do and who love the Lord like you. Uh, that You have the Lord's Supper for the first time and, and even the second time and the third time and it's fresh and it's vibrant and you, you sense you know, that this is, this is an indicator to us of, of Christ, the fact that he died for me uh, and that we are together participating uh, in remembering the cost that was paid for us. Remember the thankfulness and again, I hope this is describing you today. The great humility, the great feeling of unworthiness, of God saving, he could save me. That he, could, that he would save me. Isn't it amazing? It's a little bit like, you know, I was trying to come up with an analogy. The only one I could come up with is Scrooge McDuck's money bin. Now, if you... If you you know, I remember the comics, you know, the comics and you'd see the, the, the uh, nephews, you know, his nephews would be jumping in and swimming, swimming in his money bin. You know, it kind, of, it kind of brings that imagery to mind, but rather than swinging money, you kind of, there's this big pile of truth. And it's like you start at the edge and you've got this massive pile to work your way through. You can spend the rest of your life discovering this incredible truth of who God is. And you get to this point and you're saved and you can... You, you sit there at the foot of the cross and you say, I can spend the rest of my life learning about this and never exhaust it. And every day I can learn something new. But imagine, let's take this further, imagine that it wasn't just you, but you happened to got, get saved with about 120 odd other people at the same time. Now there's 120 of you who are all on fire. You've all got this incredible enthusiasm. You're spurring one another on. You are talking to these people and you're sharing the people you've, you've talked to about the Lord Jesus Christ that week. In fact, you've been leading people to Christ through the week. And so have they. And you're telling each other about all the stuff that the Lord is doing in your lives. You're incredibly humbled together. There's this sense of, you know, it, it's, it's all about Christ. It's all about what He's done. You know, and you see each other, you have the odd struggle, but you're instantly there and you're praying for one another. And you're supporting one another. And, you, you know, spontaneously, a small group, three or four people, just somebody's having a struggle and three or four people get around them, they're praying, they're supporting them, they're doing what they can. You know, they don't leave there alone. They, they have people thinking about them and praying for them through the, through the next few days. And every day someone's meeting with them. Um, there is, you know, in this group, just overwhelming you know, emotion in some respects. You know, just the whole joy. I mean, it's not just one person's joy. This is an infectious joy amongst a hundred odd people. It's an incredible thing. There's, there's great support, great joy. There's weeping over sin. There's brokenness and humility and great love amongst the brothers and sisters. Well, what would happen if this was actually 3,000 people? Turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, because this is exactly the scene that took place on the day of Pentecost. And the, 
the time frame between the 120 being saved and the 3,000 being saved is like a few hours. So this is within the same day. So chapter two, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Well, actually, verse 41 we'll start from. So then, those who had received his word were baptised, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This passage tells us what happened when 3,000 souls on one day got saved and were all instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we find is a church like no other Perhaps the only other church in the New Testament that, has, that you can describe as close to this is the Thessalonian church. But we don't know as much about that. Well, we don't have this kind of description about the Thessalonian church. We have Paul's letters, but it doesn't give us this kind of detail. Although there's certainly a lot of good things happening there. But here we've got a very clear description of what this brand new church, completely filled with the Spirit of God, looks like. And so we find a few things here. In the first verse, verse 42... We find their commitment. We see their commitment. These are we're going to start with C. So the commitment of the church. And it says there they devoted themselves continually. Now, the idea of this continual devotion is kind of like they insisted on persevering in it. Now, I know that sometimes we, you know, we talk about going to church and we think, oh, I don't know if I really want to. That was not the way we had it here. This is not a, we have a duty that we need to go to church. There was no duty in their minds. This was an excitement about going to church. They were devoting themselves to this continually. And it wasn't like it was a a decision the group made as a, you know, and they put a committee together and they said, hey, let's all decide whether we're going to go to this church. And they go over and they just... It was an individual thing, right? This was a group of individuals who were hungering and thirsting after righteousness, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.3. So this is a a great joy, and this was a a group of individuals who had made this decision. They had chosen, as, as Joshua said, this day whom they would serve. They had made individual choices, because God holds us individually responsible, right? This congregation of 3,000 people is not so much that it's just a group of people together as a committee or as a corporate group, that is true, but they're also a group of individuals who have individually committed themselves to pursuing this course of action. Um, God calls and saves individuals, not so much groups. And so this group of individuals... Uh, they committed themselves to four things. They committed themselves, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles, of course, as you know, were those who had been taught by Christ. They had spent three years with Jesus Christ. He had given, he had given them, um, you know, he taught them about the kingdom. He had taught them about how to live. They had seen it exemplified in his own lives. And then when Christ leaves and the Holy Spirit comes, he gives them the ability to teach. He gives them the ability to be their witnesses. Right? Remember Acts 1.8, you will, when the Spirit of God comes, you will be my witnesses. It was the Spirit of God that was the uh, enabling agent that made them able to minister in the fashion we see them ministering through the book of Acts. 
But these were these were the three of these were the twelve apostles who'd been three years with Christ. And when the Holy Spirit came, he gave them recall of what Jesus had said through certain times. He inspired their writings. And we have these writings today, don't we? In the Word of God. So they, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And we would do the same if we were devoting ourselves to the Word of God, in which I know most of us, if not all of us, are. This means that if we're going to be devoted to the Word of God, that we are to know what God's will is, right? We need to know what He's like. If we're going to be, if we want to live how He wants us to live, we need to know who He is. We need to know how to live in order to please Him. And that's the goal. And we read this in a number of passages in the New Testament. Colossians 1, 10, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, and so on. Secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, this is an interesting word. The word fellowship uh, comes from a, a, a Greek word that means sharing or partnership. So, it's, when we think of fellowship today, we often think of it as being we get together and we talk and we enjoy each other's company. And that is part of it. But that is part of it. Not all of it. Koinonia, the Greek word, is a broader word which indicates participation in one another. And we can remember this when we think about Romans 12.5, right? Which says, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we're individually members of one another. And so there's this participation that is inherent in the fact that we all mutually are members of Christ. Because we are all participators in the, in the, uh, the work of Christ and the salvation that Christ has given, we are therefore partners together, members of each other, participants in each other's lives. Now, it doesn't almost make a difference whether we kind of want to or not. That's, that's the way God has set up the church. It is that way for a reason, and we'll come to that in a moment. But when we're in fellowship, it is recognition that we have a common saviour, that we have a common master, and that's a really important word. We have a common Lord whom we submit to. We have a common destiny. We have a common inheritance. We have the same spirit within us. We have the same responsibilities before God in terms of sanctification and pleasing Him. We have the same grace that has been granted to us. We have the same life purpose and direction, again, sanctification. And therefore, because of all of these things we share in, we share in each other. We share in one another's burdens. We are key participants in each other's lives. And this is a theme throughout this passage. Look at verse 44. It says there, there were um, uh, the, all those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. Verse 45. They were sharing them with all. Okay, sharing. It's the same concept. Verse 46. From house to house. They weren't just like going to their own homes, they were moving around. And we'll talk a bit more about why that was in a moment. And they were taking their meals together. They were very much in each other's lives. Intimately involved in each other's lives. Thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And here again, they are remembering the common bond that keeps them together. This is where they participate together in the recognition uh, that helps us to understand our need and our state before God, that we are helpless sinners saved by the cross of Christ, by the work of Jesus on the cross, by grace alone. And so when we take the bread and we take the wine, when we take communion, part of that is about recognising that together, this is why we do it together, that together we are common participants in a common salvation. They also devoted themselves to prayer. prayer. Prayer is a very humbling thing. When we pray, in fact, we cannot pray unless we humble ourselves, can we? Because the very concept of prayer, as, as Pastor Jack said this morning, is that we have a common need for grace. Uh, we, have a, we are dependent on him. We know that he is sovereign, and therefore we know that if we want things to change in our lives or if we even want to understand what's happening in our lives in many respects, we need to be bringing those things before the Lord. And so prayer is one of those things that, again, it still binds us because we still recognise 
that we are all dependent together on the grace of God. We are all dependent on God. We are all humbling ourselves before him when we pray. And this is probably one of the reasons why we sometimes find it hard to pray is because we find it hard to humble ourselves. We have a common concern. We have, you know, in terms of people's salvation, people's needs, we have that common need and we see that and we're concerned about it together. We, they have common weaknesses and so they have a common need of God's grace and so prayer is partly about asking for God's grace. We have a common need for encouragement and praying together helps bring that encouragement. Praying also helps us to eliminate, if you like, self-reliance and eliminate this idea of self-trust because we find it so easy to look to ourselves for the answers. And prayer is a, is a way of saying, Lord, I, I recognise that I need you, that I can't do this on my own. So prayer is inherently a humbling thing. And so these, these, this church, their commitment was individual and it was a commitment to the, the teaching of the apostles, to the, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The character of this church then stands out. So we saw their commitment, their character. Let's look at that in verse 43. It says there, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now this is really interesting. I'm learning Greek, right? I don't know much Greek. I'm still learning. But one of the things that I found really fascinating was that the Greek word, when I looked at my Greek New Testament here, for the, that we find in the New American Standard is um, kept feeling is, a, is the same word that is used to mean was born. You know, you, you give birth to somebody. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. I wonder why that is. And then this, later in the, in, the, in the same verse, many wonders and signs were taking place. Same Greek word. So the idea here is producing, right? Something is being produced through them. It's not something that these apostles and these people, this church, is making happen. They're not seeking after the sense of awe. They're not seeking after the signs and miracles. These are things that God just produces in them that comes out of their, out of their uh, commitment, out of their pursuit of you know, devotion to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to fellowship, breaking of bread and to, um, and to prayer, which I said twice. So, uh, so this is something that, is, that God is doing. And this tells us two things. First of all, if we want to really have a good sense of, if we want to have a, if we want to fear God, if we have a sense of understanding, it doesn't start by searching for that feeling, does it? It starts with a commitment to, you know, the devotion, as we see here, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That is what we are called to do. We are called to obey and the feelings follow. Right? So the sense of all was something that God produced in them. But secondly, um, you know, with the signs and the miracles and those sorts of things, you don't see a methodology here. They're not, you know, a lot of churches where you see, quote unquote, signs and miracles, there's a methodology. Um, I don't know if you've ever sat, there's a, there's a couple of videos on YouTube that are very interesting of people who have gone to these big rallies of Benny Hinn and these kind of guys, and they've, they've seen like all these wheelchair people go in but when you're actually in there you never see them they're all right at the back kind of thing in a, in a separate area literally fenced off so that they can't get up the front uh, and so this is all methodically orchestrated so that these things take place in a way that is you know that makes it you know it's like it's, what's the word smoke and mirrors you guys know that phrase it's smoke and mirrors, yeah. So it's some guy with a sore knee. Well, you know, it's kind of hard to see that he's actually got a sore knee, but you get the wheelchair person up there, you can see there's a problem. Um, in the odd times, you do see people up there just... I saw a guy one time who had a brace on his neck. He uh, went up there and they did their thing and he was literally yanking this guy's head around on his shoulders and it just makes you feel sick. But here there is no methodology. And the reason for that is that these people have committed themselves and God is at work among them. It's not that they need to orchestrate things. God is at work among them. And we see this not only from verse 43, but also from verse 47. The Lord was adding to their number day by day. God is at work in a group of people who commits themselves and devotes themselves to these four things. They also say there in verse, uh, uh, verse 44, all those who had believed were together 
and they had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now this is kind of a scary verse. Uh, I heard a a man speak one time at another church, uh, which I think is fortunate, Um, and he was saying that, you know, does this mean we need to sell everything we've got and, and start... And he said, no, of course not. You know, our, our natural reluctance, okay, is to part with our natural goods, right? With our physical, earthly goods. We build, you know, spend our lives building our retirement plans, as we were talking about earlier on, and we spend our lives accumulating stuff, uh, which, which, I wasn't going to say this, but, you know, I go running and walking, and I'm amazed at the number of people who cannot fit their cars in their garage. I've said it. Moving on. Um, but we, <clears throat> but we, we just accumulate stuff so regularly, so much, and it's so hard to part with it. And so when you come to this, this is not saying, let me just be clear though, this is not saying that we should sell everything we have and give it to somebody else. Like, or, or we should become socialists or communists. It's, that's not the point of this passage. These people were not selling everything they had. You can see that because in verse 46, they were going from house to house. People still had houses, right? The key point here, <laughs> the key point here is that they shared in something that was far more valuable than their earthly goods. They shared in Christ. And so the earthly goods they saw as just a means to a greater end. How can they serve their fellow brothers and sisters with what God has given them here on earth? Now, there's there's another good reason for why they did this. And it's not plain, but if we think about what's going on here. Now, If we go to the beginning of chapter 2, who are the people that are in town at this time? We've got, in fact, let's just go back to the beginning of chapter 2 and go to verse 9, or verse 8. And he says there, How is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Why are there all these people in town? I'm sure you know the answer. This is the week of feasts, right? Pentecost is the feast of week of feasts. It's the feast of weeks. Sorry, uh, it would be a it's a, it's a lot of feasts. They love their feasts, right? But um, this was the the Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of Weeks is also sometimes called the 50th because it's 50 days after Passover. Okay? So you're about 50 days after Passover. Remember what happens at Passover? People from all around the world come together at Passover. Now, I did some looking at some of these languages here. I didn't learn any. But um, one of the things I found is that there are people here, Medes and Persians and those sorts of people, who would come from as far away as Rome or Iran, what we currently call Iran, uh, and all around the known world. Now, you think about that. How long is it going to take you to get from Iran to Jerusalem? Well, I did some sums. So, uh, if you live somewhere like Damascus, well, that's pretty easy. Let's just assume that you walk at an average pace of about three miles an hour, which apparently is about what we walk at, um, and there are no public transport, there's no buses, no aeroplanes, no taxis, no cars, no roads. You would walk, right? Um, now, in those days, you couldn't drive across the desert like we do today. You had to go around the top of the desert. So, uh, from, for, for Damascus, you know, that's pretty easy. You're at three, let's say you're walking at three miles an hour on average. You walk from, say, six in the morning to nine at night. It's about 15 hours a day. It's going to take you uh, to walk from Damascus, which is pretty close. It's about a nine-day walk. Okay. Uh, but these people have come from further than that. They've come from places like Rome. Now, I took one from Iran, right? You go from, and I don't know if you know this, but Google Maps cannot trace a map from Iran, or in fact anywhere in the Middle East, to Jerusalem. It just gets cut off at the Israeli border. But anyway, um, <laughs> so if you work it out, this is what happens. They couldn't walk across the desert. There's this massive desert between Tehran. As the crow flies from Tehran to Jerusalem, it's 966 miles. But that's going across the desert. You'd die. You don't do that. So you'd walk around the top, okay? You're going to walk around the areas that you can live through. That means it's going to be about 1,400 miles to walk to get to Passover if you're a good, devout Jew. And, of course, this tells us that they really were devout Jews, right? Because they had to walk a long way for the Passover. Again, an average walking pace of three miles an hour. And I know some of you are thinking, well, I'd just take a camel. That'd be much easier. 
Well, the average walking pace of a camel is the same pace, so it's going to take you just as long. Uh, again, 15 hours a day, 3 miles an hour, you have got a 31-day walk. So if you go to Passover, okay, and you wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Passover, you're not leaving after the weekend's over. Okay, you're going to stick around. And so these people would stick around until the end of the Feast of Weeks. So they're there for 50-something days. and That makes sense, right? If you're going to spend 60 days travelling, you might as well have a decent amount of time where you're going to be going. So that's what they would do. Now, but because these people would have to still have to budget and take money with them for their trip, at the end of that time, they're going to run out of money. And they've got nowhere to stay. And so here's all these new believers all get saved at the same time and they just open their homes up. They just invite one another in. You want to you, you, you stay with us? You want to stick around where the church is just... I mean, let's just remember, 3,000 people all on fire, all at the same time, you're not going to want to go home, right? I'd like to stick around, that sort of thing. That would be good. And so they would, they would just invite people into their homes. Now, Jews are, are pretty hospitable people at the worst of times. If you were to come to Passover... Like Jesus, when he was, you know, when he was twelve, and he came to the Passover, you know, if all the inns in the city were full, you would still find a place to stay pretty easily because people just opened their homes. So this is a natural part of being a Jew to a certain extent. But this goes beyond that here because now they're selling their possessions to support one another. There's people from you know, a long way away who have nothing, and they're just we would we we welcome you here. We want you to be with us. We want you to stay with us. And so they would. They would open their homes, they would sell their property, not all of it, but they would sell what was necessary in order to support one another, and they would share in the burdens of one another. Right? Can you see that kind of thing? And all this is going on with this filling of the Spirit, with this, all this new work, this great zeal and passion for the Word of God and for their Messiah. Um, you know, this is an amazing thing. And I guess... Yeah, I mean the key thing here is right. They recognise that we're all members of one another. We are all partakers in Messiah. These are Jews. These are devout Jews. They've been waiting for their Messiah a long time, which is why in verse thirty-seven, when when Peter says, uh, or verse thirty-six, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, the you crucified bit. They were in town. The people who are listening are probably the same people who, um, you know, who welcomed Jesus into town on the on Palm Sunday. They're probably the same people who cried out, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" a few days later. And so when Peter says, "You crucified," the next verse says, "When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart." There was great conviction there. And now, it's not merely that they are convicted about their sin. I'm sure there's an element of that. But their Messiah, who they've been waiting for for all these years, came and they killed him. Now what do we do? We've been waiting for Messiah for all this time. He's going to save Israel and we killed him. What do we do? Where to from here? Right? And Peter's answer is repent for the salvation of your sins. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come. He is here and his kingdom, and he will save, not in the way you think. And so... They've now got this new understanding of their Messiah. He has come. They are full partakers in his salvation, which he promised from all those years ago, which they had misunderstood, and now they understand. Now the light's turned on. What an amazing thing. And so, the natural result of that is that they continue, right, in verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. What are they doing in the temple? They're worshipping. Here, in a sense, what you have is true Jews worshipping in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said they would, in the Jewish temple, God's very house. This is a unique thing. And it didn't last, obviously, because God doesn't want the temple to be the centre of Christian worship. Christ is the centre of Christian worship, but these Jews had this privilege for a short time of, of worshipping together with one mind in God's house. Not only that, but they were breaking bread together from house to house uh, and they were taking their meals together. Now, when you see the, you know, the breaking bread, normally you get the word the in front of the bread, so it's the bread. 
uh, as opposed to just bread. Uh, and that indicates communion. So here you've got both communion and the taking of meals, which is going to be probably what we understand like as love feasts. Okay, We've just been having our agape feast, right? Think of it like that, but we're doing those like every other day. Okay, and one person will do it, then another person will put it on, and then another person will put it on. And we're just moving from one place to another. And particularly those Jews who have come from all around the world, who have got very little now, um, they've all got somewhere to eat, and they're all partaking in each other's uh, home and possessions and food and time together. And it wasn't just that they were doing it, you know, going, oh, you know, money, you know, I haven't got any money anymore. I was going to save, or like someone said, you know, I was saving those Reese's things for, some, for myself for later and I just handed them all out. But, you know, they, they had no grumbling about this. It says there that they were sharing their meals together with gladness. Okay, and the word gladness means an exuberant joy. It's not a burden at all. This is a great joy to have these new believers, along with me who's a new believer, in my house. This is a great joy. And they had an eagerness to to host one another, and we read, don't we, of be hospitable to one another. I mean, there's a lot of one another's. Essentially, what we see in this church in terms of character is we see all the one another's rammed together in a bunch of about 3,000 people all at the same time. Did you know that there are about 62 one another's in the New Testament? Of them, about 20 are love one another. 20. On top of that, you get confess your sins to one another. You get admonish one another. You get encourage one another. You get pray for one another. You've got be hospitable to one another. And so on and so forth. This is a church exercising those one another's. It's an amazing church. And the the consequence of them doing all of this, the consequence of all of this happening, is verse 40. Seven, they were praising God and they had favour with all the people. They had favour with all the people. This is the same word, we get the word grace, it's the same Greek word. Uh, so they had grace, they had favour, everybody was happy with them. And if you think about this, let's say you were living in Jerusalem at that time and you hadn't taken this Messiah on board yet. Would you be upset if this bunch of Jews were suddenly really on fire for God, worshipping in the temple, filled with joy? I think that would be a pretty attractive thing. And so it's only completely understandable that the group around them, that the people around them, look at them and go, wow, this is a great thing. We, we like having these people here. They are no burden on us. And the Lord, the last thing, that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the character of the church we see in verses 43 to 46, the consequence of this church we see in verses 47, and now there's a, I couldn't find a good C word for this, there's a corollary, uh, which means that there's a result for us, right? How does this apply to us? Now, <clears throat> I mean, this was a unique church, wasn't it? Don't you think this was a unique church? This is pretty awesome. They were on fire. They, were, they loved the word of God. They had this, and you think about this, They're, they now understood what these promises about Messiah were. This brings the scriptures to life all over again. So there's got this incredible love for the word. They love the Lord because now they see his plan more clearly. They've got this incredible overflowing love for one another. They are fervent in evangelism. No, no, there's no evangelism program. Evangelism is what each of them do is they just walk around town. And we see this uh, in chapter 4 with the, the, at the gates of the temple when Peter and John are just walking past and this man says, hey, money, please, you know. And they're just like, get money, let me just fix your legs, you know. Um, so they're just out there just living for God at every moment they have. And God was at work among them and they knew them. And they, and they all knew it. They understood that God was amongst them. And when we ask, when we look at this, it's, it's almost overwhelming. Can we be like this? Can we be like this church? I mean, these are all devout Jews. You don't live in Jerusalem, you know, in this time easily, right? And be a, unless you're a devout Jew. It was ruled by the Pharisees. You had to sort of toe the line. You had to have a commitment to that. These people who would walk a month to get there are devout Jews. There's no question about that. Um, the, not only that, but being devout Jews, they have a lot of 
let's say, a foundation from which to build on as Christians. They have a common theology. They have common traditions. They have common expectations about the Messiah, although they're all just changing together. They have common worship. They have a common God. They have a common way of living. Right? They have common ethical standards. And you look at us. We are mostly, I mean there are a few, few here who are, who are Jewish, but most of us are godless Gentiles. We have a wide variety of backgrounds. Some of us were brought up in Christian homes. Some of us were brought up in all sorts of random backgrounds where there is no worship of God or worship of false gods. Uh, we have no expectation of a Messiah or of salvation at all. We worship ourselves and we do a good job of it. We build gods to suit our own tastes and desires and we live however we want. We have some shared ethics, right? But we would differ about where those come from. You know, some people might say that our ethics come from society. Whatever society says is normal. That's where our ethics come from. And so we have nowhere near as much in common as these people do prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So can we be like this? Is it possible? Well, let's just recall that the only difference between them and us is their starting point. Once they're saved, they get the same resources we get. They get the indwelling Holy Spirit. They get the apostles' teaching. We've got the apostles' teaching today. They've got God-appointed teachers, the apostles, and we have God-appointed teachers as well, and pastors, and we have leaders and elders, and we have each other, and they had each other. So many of the factors that they got post-salvation, we share in those same things. Therefore, to some extent, we must be able to attain to something like this, Maybe not to exactly the same extent. Because, you know, this is, a, this is the birthday of the church, right? This is the first day the church comes into existence. This is a special day. And the Spirit of God is working to build something completely new. We are 2,000 years down the track. Things have been, you know, the new is now not so new, right? But remember what I said right at the beginning. This was a group of individuals. Individuals responsible before God for their individual commitment to one another, to the teaching, to, to prayer and to breaking of bread. The individual commitment is the key thing here. And I also mentioned that the Jewish culture is very communal, very you know, they're involved in each other's lives. And we're not really like that. Now, I don't know if you know, but this year is the 300th, 300th anniversary of the event, invention of what some people say is probably the most important invention in history. Does anyone know what it is? Steam engine. Anyone say that? The steam engine was invented in 1712. Now, prior to the steam engine, think about what the culture was like. Okay, And I'm talking culture, not community. Culture, community, it's very similar, but particularly I'm talking about culture here. Because culture is what influences us. The Jewish culture was very communal, and that influenced them greatly. We live in a different culture. We have a Western culture. The Western culture is a product of a number of things, but here's one of them. Um, prior to the steam engine, people tended... We had an agrarian economy, right? Which means it was lots of farms. People would live out in the country. You'd have small settlements of people who would all work together to support one another in their farming. Um, populations... You know, were spread. So if you wanted to go and see your cousin, they were either next door, right, or hundreds of miles away potentially. So that was an issue. So in that sense, um, if, you know, there was not a great deal of communication between com communities, between different cultures. And so you'd end up with a tiny microculture in each settlement. Okay? Now this makes a difference because if we think about, let's say, uh, I don't know if there's anybody in here who's got a real love for, um, uh, uh, let me just think. Uh, radio-controlled aeroplanes. Anyone like radio-controlled aeroplanes? It's just fanatical about it. No. Excellent. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so let's say for some, somehow there's an interest in you know, radio-controlled aeroplanes 300 years ago. You'd have nobody in the village to share that with. Right? You probably wouldn't be able to do anything with it. You'd be, I'm really interested in this, but there's no outlet for me to share it. Um, with the steam engine, this all changed, Right? Initially, you could get on the train and go from one place to another in a, in a day or two. It would normally take you, you know, a month or two. Um, not only that, but the steam train led to urbanisation and the growth of cities. Uh, fairly soon, these commercial hubs and, and transport hubs 
became a place where people would meet and talk and they would share cultural ideas. Uh, Soon, the commercial printing press would be invented. And with the train and then the invention of the photography with the wet plate, you know, people can now take a photograph, put it on a newspaper, put it on a, on a train and ship it somewhere hundreds of miles away in a matter of a day or two. Culture now starts to spread quite dramatically. So people can now start thinking, what are the people in New York looking like? What are they dressing in? What are the interests they're involved in? What sort of, what's going on in the world outside of our little, our little agrarian area? Um, these sorts of things are now able to spread. Then you've got the invention of the phonograph and you've got the beginnings of mass market music coming along and people start sharing in musical tastes. Uh, then you've got the radio where you don't need the phonograph so much. People just put it on, you tune in and you listen. And now what you've got is you've got culture spreading in real time. One person's ideas, one person's interests can be shared with hundreds of thousands of other people's interests very easily. Then the internet came along. Well, you've got television, you've got radio, television, the internet, right? And here we are today. What do we look like today? We are a nation of individuals. In fact, it's not so much that America is a nation of individuals, but that the West has become so individualised that we almost put aside the idea of community, right? It's very difficult to be involved in one another's lives when we are so involved in our own interests. But it's that individualism, it's that that technology, it's that growth in culture and the ability of culture to spread that makes that individualism thrive. Notice that, let me just say it this way, we cannot let the culture determine how we as Christians live. Look at verse, I'm going to go over this again, verse 42, right? They were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. Fellowship. They were devoting themselves to that. All those, in verse 44, all those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day they were continuing with one mind. One mind. If you were to ask these people, what is the thing that they are most passionate about? What do you think it would be? It would be Christ. It would be this new discovery of the Messiah and how he just changes my life. And that is what brings them and keeps them together. They were breaking bread, verse 46, from house to house and they were taking their meals together. They were together. They had one love, one passion and that passion was what they allowed to pull them all together. Today the problem we have is we have more than one love. We share our time and our interests with things that are somewhat more trivial. You know, we collect stamps. We, we fly radio-controlled aeroplanes and spend all that... No one does that, right? So we, we, can, we control radio-controlled aeroplanes and we go to the... We will travel from LA to you know, New York to fly with the group. Rather, but will we travel from LA to New York to, to share with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Will we even meet together one another? And in fact... This is the key thing. This is where it really comes down to us, right? Why do we need to be together? Why do we need... We can understand this very clearly from Scripture, right? We are members of one another. That's the way God ordained the body. Romans 12.5 says, you know, um, so we pursue the things that... Sorry, this is not it. We talked about Romans 12.5 before. Um, but, you know, we are members of one another. So we are to be together because we need one another. And Colossians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about spiritual gifts. And the point of spiritual gifts is that I need you to speak into my life. I need the gifts that God has given you to help me. You need the gifts that I have and that each other has in order to build you up in Christ. And when we remember that these people all had the same foundation of Judaism and we have such a broad spectrum of variety of different backgrounds, we need each other even more than they do. Because we, you know, if I'm coming from a a new age background and someone else comes from a new age background and I'm a mature believer, then I can come alongside that person and I can encourage them and help them in exactly the way that is going to help them. You all have different gifts and those gifts are there so that we can serve one another. We need one another's service. Um, Romans 14 says that we are to pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. 
Uh, Romans 12.10 says that we should love one another. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And this is particularly important uh, for when we think of the church as a culture. You know, there is no longer Greek nor Jew nor, you know, and so on. We are all one in Christ, right? And so we don't have uh, this, this, you know, we don't necessarily bring the culture with us, but we become a culture. And when we become a culture, that means that we need to encourage and love one another because that means that often we're breaking away from the culture and the people that we had in our life beforehand. And so we need one another. We need love and we need to encourage one another. Um, I'm not going to go through all the one another's, but here's a few. We need encouragement. First Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up. We need accountability. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. How are you doing with other believers? Are you, do you know what the needs are of other believers in this church? You don't necessarily need to know the needs of everybody in this church, but certainly you should be in the lives of some people in this church. And at a, comfortable, at a point where you're comfortable sharing your sin and praying for one another, not because you know, you've got it together and they don't, but because we're all sinners and we all need God's grace and we all need each other's encouragement. Are you praying for and with others in the church? Are you being hospitable? Are you, and I know many of you are, having people over for meals and having groups of people around just, you know, often. And that's a wonderful thing. Let me encourage you to do that even more so. Um, are you, you know, are you telling people what they need to hear? You know, we often need to hear something other than just somebody, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes we need to say things to people and be bold and say, you know, brother, I'm not sure that that's a good attitude. I think you need to rethink the way you're considering this. We need to be in each other's lives. Why is it that we push people away? Why is it that we're not so comfortable talking with each other in this kind of way? Why is it that we don't want to be in each other's lives as much? Well, one reason we've talked about is that we're very individualistic. And I think it's a good thing for us to re-examine ourselves as we look at that. But another reason is self-righteousness. Sometimes we, we look at the lives of the people around us and we think, that person's got it all together. They look really good. They look like they don't have any problems. And we know that we have some issues. And we don't want to expose ourselves to these good, righteous people. And so we sort of back away. And so we kind of hide. But you know, the reality is that we all have sin. Every single one of us. And if that person looks like they don't, well, they do. You know, and if they, you know, I would encourage you, and, and, and this has been a, a burden on my own heart and a challenge to my life, is to continually be looking at my life. You know, when I, is, is how, how, how self-righteous am I? How bad is it? And you might ask, well, how do I know whether I'm self-righteous or not? Let me give you uh, a couple of ways. First of all, um, when did you last confess sin? And it could be to one another, it could be to the Lord even. I know that you know, some of us will struggle to do that weekly, monthly. Some, we have different, we're different, right? There are generally two groups of people. Some of us are people who see our sin and are overwhelmed by it, and we just don't know how to deal with it. There's others of us who just don't see our sin, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. Do we see our sin? When you go and read the Bible, do you come away having seen your need for Christ? A.W. Pink talks about um, how that we cannot say that we've profited from the word of God until we've come away and seen our need for Christ and his grace. Which means we need to see our sin. So I would encourage you, when you read the word of God, look for sin. Look for things there that are set as an example that you don't do. Look for things that are commanded that you don't do. Or look for things that are commanded not to do that you do do. There's all sorts of different ways of looking at it, but, but look, for, look, for your, look for sin. Because without an understanding of sin, we can't have an understanding of God's grace. Without an understanding of God's grace, we can't have that reverent awe of God. Because we don't need God. And we need to need God, right? If we want to grow in Christ's likeness. We are to be members of one another. We individually stand before God. We are individuals who can commit ourselves 
to be like this church in Acts. We can commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we can recognise that we can do this only because of what Christ has done for us. And we need to remember that God ministers to each of us through each of us. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful. We are so grateful for the grace of just having each other, Lord. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Lord, it is your blessing, your goodness and your kindness that we have one another. And so we just pray, Lord, that you will help us. Help us to love one another. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Help us to be hospitable to one another. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to confess our sins to one another. Lord, we just need each other in our lives. We need one another on an individual basis. We need one another as a group. We need to celebrate the grace that you've bestowed upon us so freely. Lord, help us, we pray, to be sufficient in Christ rather than self-sufficient. To be Christ-centred rather than self-centred. To be absorbed with your kingdom and your righteousness rather than self-absorbed. To be pleasing to you rather than self-indulgent. To be involved in each other's lives rather than self-involved. To be devoted to one another in brotherly love rather than self-seeking. Help us to serve one another rather than to serve ourselves. Help us to give rather than to be self-gratifying. Help us to worship together rather than be self-glorifying. Help us, Lord, to be content in Christ rather than self-satisfied. Help us, Lord, to be dependent on God rather than self-reliant. And help us to be submissive rather than self-determining. Lord, we so badly need you. We are a people who are so filled with sin. And we need you to show us that sin and cleanse us, Lord. Help us to confess it so that we can be cleansed from our unrighteousness, as 1 John 1, 9 says. Father, we ask for your blessing upon us upon the rest of this day. May we go from here rejoicing, Lord, in the grace that we have for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.